Well, good morning and Happy New Year. Hope you had a Merry Christmas as well. It's not too often that Christmas falls on a Sunday like it did last week. It makes for some special Christmas morning sermons. Of course, when Christmas lands on a Sunday, that also means New Year's Day lands on a Sunday. So here we are, January 1st, 2017. I think this qualifies as the future. We're living in the future now. I always preach a Christmas message. I very rarely preach a New Year's Day message. But since today is New Year's Day, I figured I'd throw in one more special message themed around the new year before we get back to Philippians next Sunday. When you think about the New Year's, or New Year's rather, invariably the idea of New Year's resolutions comes up. Now I love resolutions, not New Year's resolutions. Those are, are pretty much worthless. I think we all can agree New Year's resolutions are mostly a joke. But the idea of setting resolutions in general Setting your will on a course of action is a great thing. The idea of New Year's resolutions as we know it today can be traced back to, most likely, Poor Richard's Almanac. Poor Richard's Almanac was a yearly publication published by Benjamin Franklin between the years 1732 and 1758 in colonial America. Before Franklin was known in the Revolutionary War, he was a very accomplished printer. And in the 1738 edition of Poor Richard's Almanac, He wrote why it's such a good idea to get rid of bad habits and start new ones, new good habits, every new year. He advised, quote, each year one vicious habit rooted out in time might make the worst man good throughout. His almanac published the first list of what we would call today New Year's resolutions. Speaking of today, though, this time of year, we're all familiar with all those catchy news stories that run, listing off the same old resolutions that you should be making. You're familiar with the list. Lose weight, exercise more, eat better, drink less, quit smoking, stop biting your nails, get out of debt, save money, get a better job, improve your grades, go back to school, learn a foreign language, learn to play an instrument, become more organized, reduce stress, manage your time better, watch less TV, play less games. The list goes on and on and on. We all know this list. I bet some of you in the past have made such resolutions. And if you have, I also bet you know what comes next, namely failure, just total failure and giving up. New Year's resolutions are most often followed by a failure. Some research has shown that only 8% of people who make resolutions are always successful. 19% are successful every other year. 49% are seldom successful, and 24 are never successful. Altogether, though, it just shows that three out of four people basically fail at their New Year's resolution. So like I said earlier, that's why most believe and feel that these resolutions, you, you get around the block, you realize that they're largely worthless. They're mostly a joke. Why do most people fail at their New Year's resolutions, though? Well, a couple of reasons. I think the primary resolution or primary reason people fail in their New Year's resolutions is that they only make them once a year. They only pay attention to them once a year. But resolutions are like plants. They need to be watered often if they are to grow. If you've got a plant and you water it just once on January 1st and you expect it to live for the whole year, well, it's going to die in a couple of weeks. Instead, resolutions need to be maintained. They need to be kept up to date. They need to be revisited and watered often. Another big reason resolutions fail, I think, is people fail to come to grips with the human heart, the nature of our our being. That same study found 
that the less happy you are, the more likely you are to set resolutions. But they found no correlation between success and resolutions and happiness. In other words, if you set a resolution to, to lose 30 pounds and you did it, or if you set a resolution to, to make more money and you did it, they found that you were no happier. For us, we know, though, that true happiness and satisfaction in life, it's not found in such pursuits detached from God. So anyway, like I said, the widespread failure of most people's New Year's resolutions has led them to just give it up, think of them as a joke, maybe something worthy of a little short 30-second news story this time of year, but that's about it. So that being the case, you might ask, why am I devoting an entire sermon to New Year's resolutions? The answer is I'm not. Not New Year's resolutions. Those are worthless, but I'm talking about resolutions in general. Making resolutions in general, it's a different story. And the idea of making resolutions, you might be surprised, it's actually more biblical than you might think. A lot of people think the concept of making resolutions is not found in Scripture, just a a cultural thing we do, but that's actually not true. It's just that the resolutions we're used to making are not found in the Bible. So you're not going to find Moses resolving to to lose weight this year or Jeremiah resolving to, to get out of debt It's a different kind of resolution. What's happened, though, I think, is, again, as the widespread failure of New Year's resolutions has spread, people think, well, resolutions in general are just these pointless things we do. Because their New Year's resolutions always fail, they believe any resolution will fail, and they don't even give it a second thought. But that would be a mistake, because resolutions can be an extremely useful tool, especially for us Christians. Resolutions can really help focus our efforts in sanctification, and if done properly, they can aid us in our spiritual walks. So what I want to do this morning is, in a way, try to redeem resolutions. Again, I'm not talking about New Year's resolutions, but resolutions in general, daily resolutions, resolutions you should be making each and every day to pursue Christ more closely. And so I want to keep this relatively simple this morning. So in an effort to redeem resolutions, I want to show you one, resolutions in the Bible, two, resolutions in church history, and three, we'll talk about resolutions today. Now I hope this will be helpful and in a way redeem resolutions for you. You can find in them a useful tool to aid your spiritual growth. So let's start with resolutions in the Bible. There are actually many examples of Godly men and women setting resolutions in Scripture. Let's start with Exodus 19. So if you have your Bible, you can turn there. Exodus 19. As you're turning, I'll remind you the definition of a resolution. It is very simply a firm decision. It's where you make a decision on some course of action and stick to it. You declare in advance your intentions. You're determined, you're unwavering. We would call such a person resolute or resolved. In Exodus 19, we see a perfect example of this where Israel, God's chosen people, they they corporately resolve to follow God. They come together as, as one people to resolve to do what God says. This takes place right after the Exodus. You recall Israel had been enslaved in Egypt for hundreds of years. Uh, as they were multiplying into this this vast nation. By the time of Moses, estimates say there were over 2 million Jews at that point living 
in Egypt, enslaved in Egypt. But you know, God, through Moses, freed the Jews, led them out of Egypt. He was literally calling out a people unto himself. And with the exodus complete, after leaving Egypt, do you remember their first stop? It was Mount Sinai. And that's what we get to in Exodus 19. Now, what's really interesting, though, at the time, most of these two million Jews, they don't really know God. They don't really know Yahweh as God. I mean, they know who he is, the God of their fathers. They've got some some knowledge. But as you study closely, you realize they're still mostly a pagan people at this point. Moses knows Yahweh as the one true God. But the people as a whole, they're not yet really his followers. These two million Jews, they don't really think of themselves yet as exclusively followers of of Yahweh. But this all changes in Exodus 19. How does it change? Well, as God confronts this people whom he just brought out to himself, they collectively resolve to follow him as God alone. He will be their God. They will be his people It's their resolution. It's not a cheap New Year's resolution. This is about as significant as a resolution as you can make. So let's read about it. Exodus 19, look at verse 3. It says, Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself, Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the sons of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words which the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. Now, if you didn't know before, the Exodus, that's when God was formally forming Israel into his holy nation. And verse 8 captures their response to God's call to them. They say, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. They resolved themselves to follow God. They determined in their hearts to be his people. Notice this required a decision on their part. A choice had to be made. They were presented with the truth of God, his word, his works. They themselves had just seen with their eyes his miraculous deliverance from Egypt. But this, this called on them to respond, either accept this God, follow this God, or not. But thankfully they made the right response They recognize God's supremacy and resolve to live under him, to live before him. But also realize this is what God was looking for. He wanted to see their response to his mighty words and deeds. He had just sovereignly redeemed them, promised to be their God. This should have elicited out of them a desire to follow this God, to honor this God. Look, God knew better. He knew they would fail and fall and falter. But still, this was the right response. He wanted to see the right response out of them, a resolution in their hearts to make him their God. Now, let's look at another good example. Turn 
the page over to Joshua 24. Just start flipping to the right a little bit. You'll make your way to, to Joshua 24. What's sad about the resolution Israel made is how quickly they broke it. Kind of like us, I guess, today. But just weeks after this commitment, we find them worshiping a golden calf. But not every example of resolutions in Scripture is marked by such failure. We find a, a, you could say, even better example in Joshua 24. Joshua 24 brings us to the very end of the conquest of the Holy Land. Remember, God had judged the people for their unfaithfulness by causing them to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. That time came and went. Moses died. Joshua, his right-hand man, took leadership. He then led the people into the Holy Land to, to dispossess the people, to take the land that God had given to them. God had made good on his promise to bring them into their own land. Now, that, that's all done. That The bloodshed is over. The war has finished, mostly. And the question is now, what is Israel going to do? Remember, at this point, they're still largely just a collection of 12 tribes. They're not unified. So what are these 12 tribes going to do? Now that it's kind of over, they, they have their land, what are they going to do? Would they stop following God now that they no longer need him for this conquest? Would they give up on the resolution of their fathers to worship this God alone? Joshua, who is their spiritual leader, he knows that this could happen. So after the conquest, he gathers all the tribes together and he's going to instruct them. And let's see what he says. Joshua 24, look at verse 1. It says, Then Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and called for the elders of Israel and for their heads and their judges and their officers. And they presented themselves before God. Joshua then goes on to instruct the people. As you keep reading, he reminds them who they are, where they came from, who their God is, what he did for them in Egypt. Time and time again, this God has been good and faithful to them. And then he says this, jump down to verse 14. He says to them, Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth and put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river and in, in Egypt and serve the Lord. If it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve whether the gods which your fathers served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. And you can stop there. What is Joshua telling the people here? He's telling them to be resolved, to choose for yourself today whom you will serve. Just, just make a decision and then go with it. They need to choose. They need to resolve. Either serve Yahweh, either he's the real God or not. So either get behind him and give him your life or, or not, or, or choose another God. The resolution of their fathers isn't going to cut it. They themselves needed to resolve to follow God on their own. They needed to choose God on their own. And so it goes with every generation, by the way, including us today. But Joshua, he's instructing the people to, to make a resolution. He can't make it for them. He's made one for himself, though. Look at the end of verse 15, the part we, we didn't read. At the very end, he says, But 
As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You know that phrase, you go to a Christian bookstore, you'll see a bunch of placards with that phrase on it. But rightly so. Joshua has made his resolution. It's not a New Year's resolution. It doesn't have, you don't have to wait for the new year to do it. But he's made his resolution. He has determined for himself and his household, we're going to follow God. We're going to follow this one true God. This is pretty much the definition of a resolution. But as the spiritual leader of Israel, he calls on the rest of the people to likewise resolve to make God their God. Now, let's keep going. Let's see how the people respond. Well, what are they going to do? He's called them out. Choose for yourself today whom you will serve. What will they do? Verse 16. The people answered and said, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For the Lord our God is he who brought us and our fathers up out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. And who did these great signs in our sight and preserved us through all the way in which we went. And among all the peoples through whose midst we passed, the Lord drove out from before us all the peoples, even the Amorites who lived in the land. We also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. So, thankfully, the people on their own, they agree with Joshua. Yes, we will likewise serve this God. Joshua told them they had to choose for themselves. God told them, they had to choose, and so they did. They chose rightly. Now, what happens next is very interesting. Look how Joshua responds back to their resolution. They've just resolved too. We will serve the Lord, for he is our God. But look what he says back to them. So interesting. Verse 19. Then Joshua said to the people, You will not be able to serve the Lord. For he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after he has done good to you. Verse 21, the people said to Joshua, No, but we will serve the Lord. You see what's going on here? This is amazing. And if only more Christians were spoken to like this, like, oh, you want to be a Christian. You, you want to follow Christ. That's great. But not so fast. Do, do you know what you're signing up for? Even Jesus himself told the people, if you want to follow me, you've got to deny yourself first and pick up your cross. Otherwise, you can't come after me. You have to count the cost. It's a very non-seeker-sensitive message. But Joshua is doing the same thing. He's telling Israel, okay, so you want to follow this God. Great. But... Do you know what you're getting into? Do you know what you're signing up for? You see, this is no cheap New Year's resolution. This is a serious, lifelong, life-altering commitment. It's not to be made rashly or without serious consideration. And so Joshua says to the people, essentially, like, do, do, you know, do you really know who this God is? He's holy. He's jealous. If you make a commitment to follow him cheaply and then you turn back, he will judge you all the more. And so do you really know what you're signing up for? Have you counted the cost? Because following this God is free, but it costs you everything. Will you give him your, your, your lives? And like I said, I wish more Christians had such a sit-down talk 
when they decided to follow Jesus. Too many people treat faith in Christ like a cheap New Year's resolution. And then they wonder why they find themselves rededicating their lives to Christ ten times a year. No, but do you really understand who God is? Do you really understand what Christ did for you? And do you really understand what he demands of you now? Realize for yourself today that that the sacrifice of Christ on the cross for you, that is love so amazing, so divine, as the song goes, it demands your life, your soul, your all. Now back in Joshua 24, even though Joshua spoke straight with them and gave them a reality check, they nonetheless remained firm in the resolution. They said, no, but, but we will serve the Lord. In other words, they acknowledged they knew what they're getting into. They had counted the cost. doesn't matter. They, they want to follow this God, and rightly so. So what happens next? Verse 22, Joshua said to the people, You are witnesses against yourself that you have chosen for yourselves the Lord to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. Now, therefore, Joshua says back to them, put away the foreign gods which are in your midst and incline your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. Then the people said to Joshua, we will serve the Lord our God and we will obey his voice. So he basically says back one last time, are are you really, really sure? Because, again, it costs everything. You have to give up all your old ways, all the foreign gods. He is to be served exclusively. Are you going to sign? Are you going to sign on the dotted line? And they, they say yes. The people affirm one last time. And let's, let's finish what, what Joshua does next to kind of seal the deal. Look down at verse 25. It says, So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and made for them a statute and an ordinance in Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. And he took a large stone and set it up there under the oak that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be for a witness against us. For it has heard all the words of the Lord, which he spoke to us. Thus it shall be for a witness against you, so that you do not deny your God. Then Joshua dismissed the people each to his inheritance. And this is a great ending. First, Joshua records this whole incident in the law, in the law of God. Why did he do that? He didn't have to write this down. He didn't have to make a record of this. But he did so. Why is this in Scripture, which Joshua wrote here? He did this so that Israel would have a record, a written record, constantly reminding them of their resolution to serve God and to serve God alone, that they couldn't get away with it. It's now part of Scripture. For the same reason, Joshua then set up this memorial stone. He knew they'd forget. He knew their commitment to serve God would, would over the years, grow cold. But this book and this stone would serve as witnesses of their resolution, reminding them and re-energizing them, like, remember what you said? Now, Now get on with it. This is doing something with your resolution. And Joshua, he made their resolutions even a part of Scripture. 
Most people today make a resolution like, you know, I'm going to run a marathon this year. And then proceed to do absolutely nothing about it. No commitment, no practice, no training, no reminders, no accountability. And then they wonder why it, it never happened. But Joshua here, he writes it down with the intention of having this book and this stone constantly remind the people as often as they see it what they said, what they resolved, that they would do it. Alrighty, we see a great principle. If you want your resolution to succeed, if you want your commitment to last, you need a constant reminder. Your heart is weak. Your commitment will wane. We too need reminders daily to serve God as we have decreed, as we have resolved. But this getting ahead of ourselves. So far, the main point we're making is simply that resolutions are in the Bible. That this practice of making a resolution, we're talking spiritual resolutions, to serve God, is an entirely biblical practice. There's just two examples. There's many, many more all throughout the history of Israel and the church. Countless men and women of God have, have determined, have set aside, have resolved themselves to follow God, to serve him with all their lives. And so should we. God rewards that because that's what he wants to see. This is the appropriate response to who God is, his word, his will, his works. We should commit ourselves to knowing him, enjoying him, and following him. I mean, do you think God wants his people apathetically resigned to spiritual mediocrity? Is that what he wants? Or do you think he wants them continually resolved to do better? King David made God's will known. At the end of, the reign, at the end of his reign, he commanded the people, First Chronicles 22:19. He said, "Now set your heart and your soul to seek the Lord your God." And that 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 should be the top of all of our list as resolutions every day. Set your heart and your soul to seek the Lord your God. This is a good resolution. It's a setting of the heart, a determination of the will. This is what I'm going to do to follow God. And just making the resolution is not magical. Anyone can say these words. But for those who truly love God, it's still an expression, a commitment that God wants to see. So first, these are resolutions in the Bible. Hopefully you're starting to see that the practice of making resolutions is actually more biblical than you may have thought. It's not always as worthless as our culture makes it out to be. They can be much better. So now let's, let's shift gears a little bit. We've seen some examples of resolutions in the Bible. It's, it's a biblical practice, at least. Let me show you, secondly, resolutions in church history. Just, just for the fun of it, to throw it out there, resolutions in church history. And for the sake of time, there's really just one figure from church history I want to point out to you. Many of you know already. That is, of course, none other than Jonathan Edwards. You think resolutions, you're going to think, Jonathan Edwards, if you know a thing or two about church history. First off, who was Jonathan Edwards? Well, he's acknowledged as the greatest theologian to ever emerge from America. You may know him as shaping the first Great Awakening in the 1730s. And, of course, you're, you're familiar with his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. But he's also pretty well known for his 70 resolutions. Between 1722 and 23, he penned these 70 resolutions in his own personal diary. So just for himself. What makes them truly remarkable, though, 
is that he, he did this when he was 18 and 19. Already with a heart saying, how can I maximize my little vapor of a life for God? For Edwards, these resolutions were not high hopes. They were not wishful thinking or legalistic rules. They were instructions for life to be followed. But Edwards flavored them all with the sustaining strength of God who enabled him to live by them. And that's why he's such a great example for us. He shows us what it looks like to live under a hugely sovereign God, yet still strive for godliness. And writing down these resolutions was not some meaningless chore as well. He writes at the very beginning, quote, Remember to read over these resolutions once a week, end quote. Like Joshua writing down the words in the book, he, he set himself not only to resolve, but also to remember every week all 70 of his personal resolutions. Now, for the sake of illustration here and, and time, I'll just read a few of them. I wish we had time to go through all 70. I would encourage you on your own to go look them up and read through them. Let me just give you the first 10. So do your best. Listen along. They're, they're old English a little bit, so just try and, and follow and, and get these 10 resolutions. Starts off number one, resolved. That I will do whatsoever I think to be most to God's glory and my own good, profit and pleasure in the whole of my duration without any consideration of the time. Number two, resolved to be continually endeavoring to find out some new contrivance and invention to promote the aforementioned things. Number three, resolved, if ever I shall fall and grow dull so as to neglect to keep any part of these resolutions to repent of all I can remember when I come to myself again. And number four, resolved never to do any manner of thing, whether in soul or body, less or more, but that which tends to the glory of God. Number five, resolved never to lose one moment of time, but improve it to the most profitable way I possibly can. Number six, resolved to live with all my might while I do live. Number seven, resolved never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. Number eight, resolved to act in all respects, both speaking and doing, as if nobody had been so vile as I, and as, as if I had committed the same sins, or had the same infirmities or failings as others, and that I will let the knowledge of their failings promote nothing but shame in myself, and prove only an occasion of my confessing my own sins and misery to God. Number nine, resolved to think much on all occasions of my own dying, and of the common circumstances which death attends. And number 10, resolved, when I feel pain, to think of the pains of martyrdom and of hell. Not typically what you get from an 18-year-old today, I would say. I don't see that a lot, but pretty amazing. Now, granted, Edwards, he's not God. His writings, they're not scripture. It's not inspired. But as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11.1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ, to the degree that he models Christ, we can follow him. And with these 70 resolutions, Edwards greatly models Christ-likeness. These were not your cheap, throwaway, trite New Year's resolutions. These were carefully thought out, willful, intentional resolutions 
to maximize your short little life to serve God and enjoy Him while you do live. Did Edwards become some perfect, sinless man through these? No, of course not. But was God pleased in his efforts? And there the answer is, of course. They helped guide his spiritual walk and keep him on track in serving the Lord. And we all would do well to follow such an example. If you're going to bother, if you're going to make a resolution, this is how you do it. You set your heart and your will with carefully thought out plans and you do it weekly and and you, you just do it. You resolve yourself to follow the Lord. This is what God wants. And again, we would do well to follow. Well, I'm I'm sure we could say a lot more from Scripture, from church history, about examples of resolutions. But let's let's bring it to today. Let's talk about, thirdly, resolutions today. Resolutions today. Bring it to the present. Hopefully by now you're convinced the practice of making resolutions is actually a, a good practice, a biblical practice. It can serve you well as just a little tool to help you follow Christ more. But the question then is, how exactly should you go about this? If you're going to do it, if you're going to take up the call to resolve yourself, to grow, how do you do it? We live in a world of cheap resolutions, so how do we escape that and make practically these more meaningful resolutions? Well, I want to help you here with some practical applications, so... Consider a couple of questions. First, what kind of resolutions should you make? That's a pretty important question. If you're going to do it, what kind of resolutions should you make? Now, look, there's nothing wrong with resolving to lose weight or quit smoking or get out of debt. It's all great. It's all good stuff. Go for it if you're so inclined. But that's not what we're talking about. As we've witnessed in Scripture, the more meaningful resolutions are those that have some redemptive value, some spiritual impact. Recall 1 Timothy 4.7, where Paul tells us, discipline yourself for the sake of godliness. You ever associate those two words, discipline and, and godliness? Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is only a little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So look, you want to work out in the new year, run a marathon? Go for it. But that's only a little bit profitable. Profitable for here and hereafter is godliness. How can you discipline yourself for the sake of godliness? So what we're aiming at of much greater profit are spiritual resolutions. How can you grow closer to Christ in this life and even impacting eternity. So along these lines, our question is, what kind of resolutions should you make? And just to throw some out there, let me give you five categories you don't want to miss. Five categories of resolutions that you should be making if you seek to follow Christ more. Number one, marriage and family. Marriage and family. That's a big one. How's your marriage? How's your family? God has so much to say about the importance of marriage and family that you would do well to resolve to grow in these areas. Do you need to love your wife more? Resolve. Do you need to respect your husband more? Resolve. Do you need to shepherd your kids better? Resolve. Think about the spiritual status of your family relationships and simply resolve to improve them according to God's standard. Number two, work or school. 
Second category, work or school. You think about it, work and school take up about a third of our lives. Third of your life sleeping, third of your life work or school, and then everything else. But there's so many spiritual opportunities and responsibilities associated with, with, for most of you, work. So at work or at school, are you truly doing all that you can to God's glory? Is that your intention? Resolve. Are you honoring your superiors? Resolve. Are you witnessing to the lost? Resolve. Do you thank God for all the opportunities, all the blessings that the work you do have? Resolve. Number three, church. Third category, church. As you know, when God saves you, he places you into the body of Christ, the church. He wants you to be committed to the body. So are you? Are you serving at church? Resolve. Do you struggle even with regularly attending church? Do you come and go and you kind of leave right away without fellowshipping after or finding needs, meeting needs, just being a part of the body? Resolve. Make the church the priority in your life that God wants it to be. Number four, personal devotion. Of course, not even church can replace your personal devotion to the Lord. So how is your personal relationship with the Lord? Do you find yourself still struggling to have quality time in the word? Well, then resolve. Do you struggle to have quantity time in the word? Likewise, resolve. Do you fail to meditate upon the word such that it fills you and and impacts you and actually changes the way you live? Well, you can still resolve. If your spiritual life is dry right now, if you look back on 2016 and you just feel like, man, you know, it was okay, but my spiritual walk just felt kind of dry and without a lot of passion for the Lord, this is where you need to resolve. This is where you need to to grow. Lastly, number five, prayer. We could say so many more, but a fifth category, prayer. Are you praying as you probably know you should? Are you spending that quality and quantity time in prayer? Resolve. Are you consistently praying for the salvation of your lost loved ones? Every day. Resolve. Do you pray for the sanctification of the saints? How much have we been learning about praying for one another and thanking one another in Philippians 1? Are you, are you doing that? Resolve. Again, we, we could go so much further with these lists and these categories. Just yourself. Think of all the different aspects of your spiritual walk, your your, your Christ-likeness, how can you grow? Resolve. Set your will on a course of action and resolve yourself. We'll leave it there for now, but understand, if you want spiritually meaningful resolutions, think along these lines and then just imagine how much better your spiritual life could be if you actually did these things and stuck to them. Consider your spiritual walk and make these resolutions. That kind of brings up the last question we want to talk about this morning, though. Namely, how do you keep these resolutions from merely being good intentions? Resolutions, even spiritual ones, they're not magical incantations that you just say and and you're all of a sudden better. Something has to happen. You've got to do something. So what is needed for these resolutions to succeed? It's great that you make better resolutions each and every day, not just in the new year, but still. What is needed for resolutions to succeed? That's a second question. 
what is needed for resolutions to succeed. Here, uh, I know I'm giving you lots of lists, trying to be a little practical today, so let me give you four requirements for successful resolutions. Four requirements. Number one, of course, salvation. Yeah, that's going to be a big one, salvation. You don't have much of a chance of growing spiritually without the starting point, salvation. I mean, without salvation, you can work as hard as you can, try and be godly. You can run as fast as you want, but you'll always be running in the wrong direction, and it will get you nowhere. If you're still separated from God in your sin, then any progress you make, it's ultimately in the wrong direction. It's not giving you anything, not doing anything for you. Unless you've overcome your sin problem, th- sin problem through Christ, these resolutions are, are fool's errand. They're, they're pointless. Now, thankfully, this requirement is open to all. You must simply believe. See your sin and your sinfulness. Recognize every, every one of your evil thoughts and deeds and, and words before God is an infinite offense. Like Joshua told the people, he's a holy God and a jealous God, and he will judge. He has to judge in his righteousness. But thankfully, although God can't let you go, he can't let your sins go, he can place them on Christ. Jesus came to die on the cross to pay for your sins, and you can have salvation and forgiveness now through him. Like he redeemed Israel, he can redeem you. You must simply believe in Christ and follow him. Count the cost, but then give him your entire life. Then and only then will any resolution make any sense or any good. With salvation comes new life. This is the essential foundation for knowing God and following God. So first, consider your salvation. If any haven't, come to Jesus. Until then, that's the only decision that you're going to make that that makes any difference but invite you to come to him and to believe, then you will find the foundation for life, for new life, and of course for spiritual growth. You add to that number two, God's spirit. A second requirement for resolutions to succeed, God's spirit. Don't skip over this. Not on autopilot. In related to salvation, you can't achieve anything spiritually apart from God's grace, God's help. God is the power plant from which we derive everything we need for life and godliness. So if you are going to grow in Christ, you can't just flesh it out. You can't just do it by yourself. We need God's grace and strength to empower us, to give us the spiritual energy and resolve to act. And that comes through the Holy Spirit. You need God's help to strive after Christ, so seek it and find it in the Spirit. You know, back to Jonathan Edwards, he understood that. You might think, you know, he makes this list of 70 resolutions. A lot of people do that. They, they might try and make a list of things to do. But then they try and just flesh it out. Okay, I've got my list. Now I'm going to live by my list. I'm just going to do it by my own willpower. That's a recipe for failure because your willpower, my willpower, it's not strong enough. The spirit is willing. The flesh is weak. So we need the Holy Spirit to help. In the preface to his 70 resolutions, Edwards said, quote, Being sensible that I am unable to do anything without God's help, I do humbly entreat him by his grace to enable me to keep these resolutions so far as they are agreeable to his will for Christ's sake. 
end quote. He recognizes this is great, but I, I can't do anything if God is not for me, if he's not energizing me. And so he prayed for it, he counted on it, and you need to do the same. Seek and pray for and find God's strength in the Spirit. Thirdly, though, spiritual sweat. It's not contradictory. It might sound like I'm just contradicting what I just said, but it's not. This is the great teaching of Scripture. Even though we can't do anything outside of God's grace, he still tells us to get to work. He still wants us to work. He wants us to strive after godliness. We can't. We don't have the power. But by his enabling, we can. And so he tells us, well, get to work. We are saved by grace, but... That doesn't mean we are to then stand around and just do nothing. We are saved by grace for good works that we might grow in godliness. And so God tells us to work. Very shortly, we'll get to Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Familiar to you, I'm sure, where God says, or Paul through God says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It just nails it. That's what it's about. That's, that's how you grow. God provides the power. He is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And without him, you, you can't. But with him, you can and you must. Then it's on you. You work out your salvation. God provides his power, then we must work. That's, that's how it works. And like we just read, 1 Timothy 4, 7, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. We all have a very high view of God and God's sovereignty here. That does not mean we sit around and just do nothing, saying, well, if God wants me to do something, he'll do it for me. He's already provided you his grace and his strength in Christ through the Spirit. So when you fall short, it's not his fault. You discipline yourself for the sake of godliness. When it comes to your resolutions, you have to work at them. Okay, you want to love your wife more? Good. What are you going to do about it? You pray for strength and grace. You seek humility and then make some list, make some action items, seek some accountability. You want to read the Bible more? Carve some time out, put some reminders in your phone, get people involved. You have to do something. The point is consider your resolutions and then get to work. Do something about them. God has, he's actually already given you grace and strength in Christ through the Spirit, which you possess if you are in Christ. So now it's on you to exert some spiritual sweat and discipline yourself to grow. Lastly, we'll just add number four, follow up, a fourth requirement for successful resolutions is to follow up. Remember Joshua, what did he do? He didn't just take their word for it, he wrote it down. And then he set up a memorial stone to constantly remind them, this is what you said, remember? So don't forget and get back at it. Likewise, Edwards, he wrote down his 70 resolutions and then he read them every single week. Just imagine you had a, you know, one of these cheap New Year's resolutions, but you actually read it and reminded yourself about it every week for the whole year. You'd probably end up doing it. Follow-up is the key. For all of us, a time of weakness will come Our enthusiasm, it's going to diminish for any effort, any pursuit. So you need to remind yourself often of your commitments and even go so far as to get some accountability. Pursue godliness with one another. 
persistence and follow-up are required. And this is where the church comes in. God wants us to be striving after Christ-likeness together. So to run this race together, resolve together with one another, holding one another accountable in your efforts. God wants us to be encouraging one another daily that we would not be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So take that up as well. Discipline yourself and strive after godliness while humbly depending on God's grace and strength through the Spirit. That is the path to growth in Christlikeness, which should be the, the end goal of all of our resolutions. So I ask you, as you ask yourself, what do you need to resolve to do in 2017 and beyond? I mean, just forget the New Year's every day. Look back on 2016. Play back the tape of 2016. How did you fall short? Where did you stumble? Where do you need to grow? Consider the state of your spiritual walk. Resolve to grow and then and get at it. This is the response God wants to see out of his people. So I pray that we all can say today and every day that we are resolved. As for me and my household, we will serve the Lord and then do so. Let's pray. I agree, God, we're thankful for this little time in, in the Word this morning. And as we reflect upon this new year, we are excited for the opportunity it brings. We look back on the year gone by, and for many, perhaps a time of, of failure or hardship or trial or tribulation, suffering, perhaps even losing some battles to sin. Lord, we thank you for that grace, that you are a God of grace, though you are just and can't look away from our sin. At the same time, you've already sent Christ to die on the cross to pay for our sin, to, to bring us to yourself, reconciling us in complete forgiveness. And, and so, Lord, you look at all of our failings. You know who we are. You know we are fallen. Yet you are still gracious. We thank you for that grace, Lord. And it only motivates us all the more so to resolve to, to pursue you all the more. You are a holy God. You are a jealous God. At the same time, we want to be holy as well and jealous for your glory. So may that be the resolution in our hearts this morning, Lord, that this day and, and every day is not just some New Year's thing we do, but, but daily we take up this call to, to set our will on a course of action, to chart out our path that we will serve the Lord. We give you our lives, Lord. You have already bought them by grace, and we simply offer them back up to you. Our lives are yours. What will you do with us, Lord? Make it clear. And then we offer up ourselves. We resolve to give you all of us in this new year and beyond. I pray that that's our heart's cry for all of us this morning. Work in us, bless us as we bless your holy name. We look forward to this year to serve you. Until the Lord returns, we pray. That comes quickly. But until then, we give you the praise, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.